This podcast is sponsored by Danny Katz and Josh Newman in honor of Sarah Banduho, and we thank them for their sponsorship. If you would like to sponsor an upcoming episode of A Torch Podcast, or if you have any questions or comments, please email me, rabbiwalby at gmail.com. Before we begin, we have an important announcement. This is not going to be relevant to most of y'all, but some of y'all, it will be relevant. We are pleased to announce that our organization, Torch, just began accepting donations of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. I used to always make a joke that we accept all kinds of donations. If you have ingots of gold or silver, gems, precious stones, scrap metal, Bitcoin, that was the joke. Whatever you want, we'll take it. But now we actually set up a Coinbase account and you could submit donations. And there are, of course, tax benefits. You don't pay capital gains taxes on your gains, on your unrealized gains. And of course, I know nothing about taxes and I'm not an accountant and don't ever take tax advice from a rabbi, but that is what I have been reliably told. You could still get your full tax deduction. So if you would like to do that, the link is in the description. We are in the month of Adar, and this is the month that we are supposed to increase joy. The Talmud tells us the book of Titus, page 29a, Mishanichnas Av, when the sad month of Av arrives, we decrease in joy. It's a sad month. Lots of bad things happen to us. We're less joyous. And when the month of Adar comes around, the month that we have the festival of Purim, the month that is the run-up to the month of Nisan, where we have Pesach and all the miracles that happen in Pesach, when that month comes, we increase in joy. Adar Kitsch starts the months of miracles. It's a time that our joy jumps up a notch. And in fact, this famous Talmudic teaching has been fashioned into an energetic, uplifting, folksy song that signifies the month of Adar and the Purim season. It is indeed a time of great joy. And this is what I want to investigate. What is the role of joy, of simcha in Jewish life? You can make your case that our religion is dogmatic. We follow rules. We obey directives. We were given these rules from God and we have to follow them. We could be sullen. We could be sad. We could be morose. But you know what? We do the will of God and we are considered good people as a result. Maybe moods, states of being like joy have no place. So what role does joy, does simcha play in Judaism? And I want to ponder some related questions as well. What exactly is joy? What is the essence of joy? What is the physiological conditions that foster joy? And does the Torah contain any valuable advice on living a life of joy? That is the objective and let us begin. So what we discover from the very onset is that not only is joy tolerated in Jewish life, it is absolutely central. Let's go back to the Talmud about the month of Av. If you examine it quite critically, you'll notice that the increase in joy that we have in the month of Adar and the decrease in joy that we have in the month of Av are only relative. When Adar enters, 
we increase our joy. When Av enters, we decrease our joy. But we're joyous regardless. The reduction of joy in the month of Av is just relative. We are always joyous. It's just a question of gradients. The whole year we're joyous. And when the sad month of Av comes around, we reduce it a little bit. But we're still joyous. When the exuberant month of Adar begins, we open up the season of miracles and the joy reaches a fever pitch. But the whole entire year, the life of a Jew is one of continuous, ongoing, never-ending, unbridled joy. Joy, delight, unrestrained exuberance, that is the life of the Jew. But what exactly is joy, and how do we get it? Now, finding out what joy is, what is the Torah's definition of simcha, it's a little bit hard to pinpoint. You know, how would we go about finding out what the Torah says about, about joy? So, of course, we have been trained that if you want to find out what something is, you find out where it's featured, and you see what clues you could discover from when the Torah and the Jewish literature use this particular term. So where in the Torah and in the Torah literature do we find discussions about joy, about simcha? What we discover is interesting. Because the concept of simcha, of joy, is found in many seemingly totally disparate areas. So for example, marriage. The Talmud of the book of Yavamos, page 62b, tells us, Call Adam, any man or any person, she'ein lo isha, that has no wife. Sharui below simcha. He is left without joy. If you want to be joyous, you have to have a wife. And in fact, there's a verse in the Torah that says, for the first year of a marriage, the man cannot go to war and he must make his wife happy and joyous. Vesimach as ishto. So the term joy is associated with marriage. Okay, what else? We find the term joy, simcha, associated with rain. The Midrash tells us that there was a non-Jew who went over to one of the great rabbis and said, you have festivals and we have festivals. And when we're joyous, you're not joyous. And when you're joyous, we're not joyous. Is there ever a time that we could both be joyous? And the great rabbi responded, yes, when the rains come, we are all joyous. Now, of course, on a simple level, well, if it rains, we have agriculture, we're not going to starve to death. But on a deeper level, there's something significant in rain that evokes the Torah's definition of joy. Well, what exactly is that? Okay, what else? Our sages tell us that the day of our greatest joy was the Sinai revelation. There's something about Sinai that is, by the Torah's definition, quite joyous. And in fact, throughout Talmudic literature, we find the term semechim, sameach, happy, joyous, as it was given at Sinai. When, when the sages studied Torah at the highest level, they were as joyous. They replicated the state of joy that was present at Sinai. There's something joyous about the Sinai revelation, and that could be reenacted when people study on a very high level. So what do we have? Marriage, rain, sign of revelation? 
And we have, of course, the temple. The Midrash tells us that the temple is the epicenter of great joy. The temple was a joyous abode. Well, what else? We find in the Talmud that the term joy is applied to meat and wine and even jewelry. Talmud book of Psachim, page 109a, tells us there is a requirement for a man to make his family joyous on the festivals. The verse says, You should be joyous on your festivals. You are required to make sure that everyone in the family is joyous on Pesach, on Sukkot, on Shavuot, on the festivals. Ask the Talmud, well, how do you make them joyous? Says the Talmud, it depends. For men, you have to give them meat and wine. For women, you have to give them nice clothing. And what's nice clothing? Says the Talmud, depends. In Babylon, it's colorful clothing. In the land of Israel, it's nice, freshly pressed white linen clothing. What about kids? You have to give them candy. So we talk about joy and there's marriage and there's rain and there's Sinai and then there's the temple, all these lofty ideas. And here we find joy that's decidedly less lofty. A juicy steak, a fine Bordeaux, stylish clothing, candies for the kids. And in fact, when we read the Rambam and he tells about the responsibility to make everyone joyous in the festivals, it gets a little bit pricier, he tells us that a man is required to buy jewelry as much as he can afford for his wife on the festival because you have to make her happy. You have to make her joyous. The festival has gotten more expensive. There's meat, there's wine, there's candy for the kids, and there's jewelry for the wife. Now, what does this have to do with Sinai, with the temple, marriage, with rain. These themes seem to be totally unrelated, yet in our literature we're told they all relate to joy. And finally, there is the verse in Deuteronomy. And this is one of the most difficult parts of the Torah to read. It's the admonition at the end of Deuteronomy where Moshe warns the people in the event that you abandon God and you abandon Torah, you are going to be severely punished. And it gives this very long laundry list of devastating things that are going to befall our people. And finally, we read a reason. Why is this all going to happen? Chapter 28, verse 47. Because you did not worship God with joy. Apparently, from Scripture, joy is the required temperament and feeling and state of being of doing a mitzvah. If you do a mitzvah, but it is without the requisite joy, not only is it not a good thing, it's a bad thing. It's deserving of severe, harsh, divine punishment. Doing the mitzvahs, we're told, is not enough. It has to be done with joy. Otherwise, it's going to be punished. What does this mean? Why is joy such a central component of mitzvahs? So what do we have? We have marriage, rain, Sinai, temple, mitzvahs, meat, wine, jewelry. All these themes are associated with simcha, with joy. What exactly 
is joy all about? So my grandfather, a blessed memory, said a fascinating idea that explains how all these things relate to joy and what the essence of joy is and demonstrates why it is such a central concept in Jewish life. And he says that the Almighty created a world that has a lot of opposites. You have heaven, you have earth, you have a man, you have a woman, you have a soul, you have a body, you have intellect, you have emotion. These are opposites. But the opposites don't need to always remain opposites. Sometimes they influence each other positively. And sometimes they even unite into one indivisible thing. Whenever there is a unity of opposites, whenever there is a harmonization of things that were previously different and even opposing, you have joy. That's the commonality with all these things. Marriage. Let's start with marriage. Marriage, we're told in the Talmud, if a man has no wife, he has no joy. Meaning, if there's no union of opposites, there's no joy. Before marriage, man is alone. He has no one to unite with. He has no one to share his life with. He can't have joy. With marriage comes the opportunity to bond the two opposites and thereby create the state of joy. Okay, let's get to Sinai. Sinai, of course, is the union of the nation with God. This is akin to an eternal bond of opposites, and that fosters joy. Well, what about the temple? Temple is a portable Sinai. It's a union between us and God, and therefore it's a venue of joy. Rain, says the Midrash, Rain is a relationship of a man and woman, of a male and a female, of the heavens and the earth. The rain comes from heaven above, and it comes and unites with the earth below. And that fusion, that unification of opposites, that brings joy. What about the festivals? We're told on the festivals, you have to be joyous. What does it mean to be joyous? It means that the various opposite parts that comprise you as a person are all happy, are all delighted, are all equally excited for the festival. And you know what? You have a problem. The soul, of course, loves festivals. It's a holy, elevated day. The soul is able to pick up the almost imperceptible feelings of holiness and specialness that are present in that day. The soul does not need to be coached to be joyous, to be upbeat, to be happy in the festival. But that's not joy. If the soul is delighted, if the soul is experiencing spiritual ecstasy and the body is left behind, you don't have joy. You don't have unification of opposites. And therefore, in order to bring the body to parity with the soul, you have to make sure that it becomes happy, that it becomes joyous, that it too is not left behind. How do you make bodies happy? The Talmud tells us nearly 2,000 years ago, you have to have steak and alcohol for the men, clothing and jewelry for the women, candies for the kids. As much as things change, they remain the same. 
In addition, the Talmud tells us that a prophet has to be joyous in order to experience prophecy. Again, same idea. You want to communicate with God, you have to have a unity of purpose to achieve that. And therefore, we're told that David will play music to experience prophecy. Isaac would need to have a stake in order to give a prophetic blessing to his son. Initially, he was planning to give it to Esau. Ultimately, Jacob usurped it. To have the presence of God rest upon a person, that person must be in a state of joy. The body has to participate as well. You got to give it meat. You got to give it music. You have to create a harmonization of body and soul. Only those conditions are ripe for prophecy. So we have a definition of joy. Joy, by definition, is connection. It's unity. It's the fusing together of opposites. Let's take this a notch deeper. Let's talk about mitzvos. Commandments that we have from God. Mitzvos by design are there to foster joy. You do a mitzvah, you help your fellow man, you are uniting with another human being. That's the definition of joy. You study Torah, you're uniting with Yomani's Torah. You obey the Yomani's mitzvah, and you are uniting with the conveyor of that commandment with God. Things that were opposite, things that were distant, things that were separate from you are now becoming integrated. That is joy. If someone tries to develop themselves spiritually, they unite their intellect and their emotion, their body and the soul. Every good deed, every mitzvah, every studying of Torah is designed to evoke joy. Why? Because these are not isolated behaviors. These are behaviors that unite a person with their fellow man, with Torah, and with the Almighty. So what happens when a mitzvah lacks joy? Well, by definition, it's an act that is bereft of union. Maybe the person is acting, the body is putting on tefillin, the body is doing some act that mimics what the Almighty wants of us, but the soul is not part of this deed. It's a lifeless, soulless act. This is the behavior of a moist robot. This is not what the Almighty wants. When a person does a mitzvah without joy, there is no union of body and soul. And that's something that the Torah says is actually punishable. Not only is it not a good thing, it's a bad thing. In fact, the Talmud tells us that if someone does a mitzvah by rote, by habit, out of routine, if it lacks joy, the punishment for such behavior is more severe than the punishment for idolatry. And thus, the verse tells us, if you do a joyless mitzvah, that's an indication that this is not a fusion of body and soul, and that is not the intention of the Almighty. So the point is not, hey, you should be joyous. Joy is not a mitzvah on its own. It's an indication that a certain deed is done with unity of body and soul. We're told that the great Arizal, the great Kabbalist, he testified that the reason why he merited all the great secrets that he got is because he did mitzvot with joy. 
What that means is it's not that there's two separate things here. You do a mitzvah and you add joy to it. By definition, if you do a mitzvah and you are harnessing your body and soul together to fulfill the will of God, everything's going to become elevated. There's this interplay. There's this intercourse with your body and soul and forever you are going to be elevated. There's going to be a creation of parity between body and soul. Mitzvahs, by definition, are the tools to transform a man into an angel. How does that happen? Only when the mitzvahs are done with joy, with unification with God, with unification with soul, and consequently, man is forever changed. So joy on its own is not a mitzvah, but it is the condition of a man who does a mitzvah in totality, body and soul together. And as a result of that, there is a unification to fulfill the will of God, and the person is forever changed. Our nation is supposed to be in a perpetual state of joy. We compare ourselves to our cousins, for example. Asav, they are associated with the physicality, not the spiritual. They're the sun and not the moon. Ishmael, our other cousin, is associated with just the spiritual and not the physical. The moon and not the sun. According to Jewish philosophy, Asav is hedonistic, and Ishmael is monastic. Those are our cousins. We are joyous. We meld and fuse and bond the spiritual and the physical. Our calendar is a hybrid of the moon and the sun. We are not like Asav. We are not like Ishmael. We take those two and we fuse them together. We take the interest of the body and, of course, the primacy of the soul, and those are joyously united in mitzvos. Our national motto, of course, is na'aseh v'nishma. We will do and we will listen. If you break down those two words etymologically, na'aseh, oseh, to do, that is related to the word esav, esau. Nishma, we will listen, that is related to the word Yishmael, Ishmael, we will hear. We are not like Esav or like Ishmael. We are joyous. We are a fusion of the two, and that's the definition of joy. And the whole year, we're joyous. In Adar goes up due to the miracles, both the miracles of Purim and the miracles of Pesach. And the definition of miracles, well, what's the definition of a miracle? It's the union of opposites, where the heavenly and the earthly spheres unite. And that, of course, is the definition of joy. Let's try to take this a little bit of a notch deeper. Joy, simcha, is associated with happiness with your lot. Ezehu ashir hasameach bechalto. Who is the one who is truly wealthy, the one who is joyous in their lot, in their portion? What is the connection between joy, between unification of opposites and satisfaction with the things that you have, with your material gifts, with your intellectual gifts, to be happy with your lot, with all the tools that the Almighty gave you? There's a very deep point over here. We said earlier that rain brings universal joy. It connects the heaven and earth. What else does rain connect? 
The answer, of course, is that rain takes the latent potential that is underneath the ground, the seed, and it transforms it into the fruit. Rain creates joy because it unites the potential with the reality. Joy is when we unite our potential with our reality. What does it mean to be joyous with your lot? What does it mean when a person says, whatever I have, I'm happy with, I'm delighted with, whatever other person has, I don't even want, I'm not interested in that. What is happening to such a person? That person is recognizing that they are here for a specific mission. And this is the mission that they need to accomplish that no one else can. And they have to do what's incumbent upon them and not what's incumbent upon someone else. And such an attitude requires that a person recognizes that the tools that they were given are specifically tailored for them to accomplish their specific mission. In other words, if a person is joyous with their lot, there is a unification of their individual soul that is going to be actualized by their body. Hence, being joyous with your lot is once again unification of body and soul. The soul knows that it has a specific mission. The body is given the tools to actualize that mission. And when the body realizes this is why I'm here and these tools are what I have, suddenly the body and soul are on the same page trying to accomplish the reason why they might have placed them here, recognizing that I have the exact tools needed to do it. Your joy is with your lot because now your body and soul are on the same team focusing on the same end goal. So how central is joy to our religion? Exceedingly, inordinately central. And let's go even one notch deeper. And I hope someone there is keeping track of all these notches. Let's talk about the opposite of joy. Let's talk about sadness. Is sadness ever appropriate? The whole year we're told you've got to be joyous. Well, when are you supposed to be sad? There's only one time that you're supposed to be sad. And that is amidst confession. Of course, on Yom Kippur we do confession. Anytime someone wants to repent, they have to do confession. And at that moment of confession, it's okay to feel sad. Every other time, our state is supposed to be one of joy. The great Chazon Ish pointed out that the prophet Jeremiah wrote the saddest book of our scripture, namely that of Lamentations. And that's a book written prophetically. And the verse says, You shall surely cry at night. And it's describing the devastation, destruction of Jerusalem, terrible things befalling our people. It's a very sad book. It's gut-wrenchingly sad. Yet he was joyous. Because only when you're joyous can you have prophecy. And if this book was written prophetically, it must mean that he was joyous. The answer is that even when you're dealing with sad things, you're supposed to be joyous. We shun sadness. We avoid it. We don't want to be somber or morose or sullen. Because again, sadness is a sign of seclusion, of disconnection. And it's the opposite of what we're trying to accomplish. And in the Kabbalistic literature, we find something fascinating. In the Shari Kedusha, written by Rabbi Chaim Vital, the primary disciple of the Arizal, 
he talks about sadness. And he says, if you are sad, you're going to worship God less, you're going to do fewer mitzvahs, you're going to neglect Torah study. You're not going to have proper intent and motivation and concentration during prayer. And you're going to avoid good thoughts of worshiping God, and it's the beginning of the incitement of the evil inclination. And it is a particularly dangerous emotion because a person could be corrupted into thinking, well, after all, I'm not worth anything. I'm I'm just like a worm. I have no value. And you're supposed to be sad. And that, of course, is faux righteousness, faux piety. Sadness is to be avoided. And then he adds, sadness comes from the venom that the primordial serpent inserted in Adam and Eve. And he quotes the verses in Genesis chapter 3 in the aftermath of the sin, both with respect to Adam and with respect to Eve. Their punishments were be'itzavon, with sadness. With sadness, you should eat your bread. With sadness, you should have your children. The experience of sadness is the presence or is a manifestation of the presence of the serpent and the serpent's venom within a person. And then he says, if someone is sad, by definition, it's the serpent taking themselves over, taking the person over. And as a result, consequently, not because of sin per se, but because the presence of the foreign god, of the serpent, of the Yetzirah, is manifested within a person, the Almighty leaves. And therefore, you cannot have the presence of God in a state of sadness. Our nation is very serious about life. Of course, we, we have God who gives us instructions and we have Torah and we have mitzvot and we have a very great responsibility upon our shoulder. We take life very seriously. But seriousness does not equal somberness. We strive to be serious and we avoid being somber and sad. The two ought not to be conflated. The venom of the serpent is all about division and separation. The serpent wants people to be separate from each other, to be cloistered up in their own world, to be isolated by themselves, to be separated from God. Separation is the handiwork of the serpent. And the serpent is all about sadness. And our responsibility is to banish the serpent's venom as soon and as thoroughly as possible. And sadness is thereby deadly. Seriousness is good. Sadness is harmful. And I think a good, valuable way to work on this whole idea is to recognize that we are unique. If I realize that I am a one of one, there never was and never will be another person's act like me. If you realize that, there's no room for sadness. With that attitude comes self-confidence and self-esteem. The Almighty has a task that only I could do. He must have given me the tools to accomplish it. I have everything I need to accomplish whatever it is I need to accomplish. Each morning we say, She'asa li kol We thank the Almighty for making for me all that I need. If we recognize that, immediately we'll be imbued with confidence. We won't feel inferior to other people. Why would I compare myself to someone else? They have a different responsibility than me. We are not graded using the same metric. Of course, this is not an excuse for poor performance. It's 
Quite the contrary, it's a recognition that a lot can be expected of us because we're not graded against the average individual. The story goes that there was once an isolated yeshiva student. There was a yeshiva student who was homeschooled and only at a relatively advanced age did this young man enroll in yeshiva. So if you want to enter yeshiva, you have to be tested by the Rosh Yeshiva to see if you qualify. So this isolated, homeschooled student began to profusely apologize to the Shashiva. I've only memorized three orders of Talmud with the Rashi and Tosfos commentaries. Now, if you know what that means, that's like half of Talmud. To memorize all of that is a gargantuan accomplishment. But this person was isolated. He was never exposed to mediocrity. He never compared himself to his peers. And therefore, in his mind, I only know half of Talmud. I'm a, I'm, I'm a joke. I'm, a, I'm an embarrassment. We are individuals. The Almighty has a unique responsibility that he gives to me and to you and to everyone you know. And he gives us the precise tools to accomplish that. And I think a lot of this has been lost with standardized, commercialized, industrialized education. We've lost the polymaths. We've lost the people who say, what everyone else has, the pace that they go is not for me. That is true joy. True joy is when you recognize you have your own responsibility, your own requirements, and that is why your soul is here and your body is given all the tools to do that. Body and soul are holding hands, are united in purpose to achieve your life mission. If you are envious, that's going to be a sad way to sadness. But again, envy hinges on a world view that ignores individuality. If every person is a unique world, there is just joy and no sadness. So in conclusion, this is the season of joy. But truthfully, every day is joy. That is the mission and calling of our people. Every success is to be cherished and celebrated. Every failure is a lesson, is a stepping stone in the right direction, is an opportunity to improve. Everyone's an individual. Everyone has a unique soul. And the soul must link with the body in mitzvahs. That's the definition of a mitzvah with joy. A life of delight is a life of harmony in purpose with body and soul. We have everything. We have this world. We have the next world. Jacob got both this world and the next world. And that is joy. May we all be fortunate to be joyous every day of our lives. And may the Almighty make it easy for us to be joyous every single day. I thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed. Hope you have an incredible and joyous rest of your day. An amazing Shabbos. Take care. This is Rabbi Yaakov Olbe coming to you from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. We have been thawing out from the recent freeze. I hope all of y'all are well, are safe, are happy, and looking forward to speaking to y'all soon.